I'm Laura Rice, and this is Full Body Frequency. My guest today is Dr. Kat Pazé. She's a fat studies researcher and the host of the Fat Positive Radio Show, Friend of Maryland. We talk about what plus-size people need to know before receiving our first, second, or third COVID vaccination. Size matters, both our bodies and the size of the needles used. If you've begun the vaccination process or completed it, help create equitable health outcomes for the plus-size community by sharing your experience via the COVID Fat Vaccination Survey. It's quick, it's easy, it's painless, and you don't even have to leave your home. Stay tuned to learn more. Kat Pazé, welcome back to Full Body Frequency. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. It's been far too long. Now, you're in New Zealand, which instituted an incredibly strict lockdown policy that has been credited for the existence of few cases of COVID-19 and a minute amount of spread. So what has life in New Zealand been like for you since March of 2020 pre-vaccination? I have to say that I am incredibly grateful that I was and have been living in a country that had a labor government in, so that's a, a progressive liberal government in, in business in place when the pandemic started that listened to the scientists. It has made all the world of a difference because we did at the first sign of what they would call a community case of COVID lock us down for about Gosh, it, it was only last year, but time seems so, I don't really remember the, the basics. I think it was for about four to six weeks, the whole country locked down and like lockdown, lockdown, because I've talked to other people like in the UK and in Australia and like they talk about like lockdown and like getting pizzas delivered and stuff. And it's like, oh no, lockdown here was unless you had what was considered an essential job, you were home and essential jobs mm. did not include food service. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we, we had a really hard, strict lockdown at the front, but then basically when we reopened up, things went largely back to the way that they were. We weren't even wearing masks when we had our first community case of Delta, which was on August 17th at noon is when the country found out that there was the first community case of Delta. We went back into another hard lockdown that day. Um, simply because we knew how much more transmissible Delta was. So it's been a very surreal experience to live here in New Zealand under this government's policies, watching the rest of the world, including my home back in the United States, I was born and raised in Texas, have a completely different approach that seems to just many of you will die and that's just what's going to have to happen happen. So it's been really surreal in that sense. And again, I'm just, I'm so incredibly grateful to be where I am in a country that values people's lives over other metrics, like, I don't know, the economy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. What a blessing to be in New Zealand. I I was thing. Now, you've done some incredible work over the years in the space of fat studies and work around normalizing fatness. 
In February of 2021, you and your colleagues contributed a paper to the International Journal of Disaster Risk Reduction. The article is entitled Resisting the Problemization of Fatness in COVID-19 in Pursuit of Health Justice. What has been and what is the problemization of fatness during the pandemic? So, Laura, not surprising to you or I'm sure any of your listeners, we have long lived in a society where fatness is presented um, as a moral panic, as the thing to blame all other bad things on. Fat people get blamed for everything from terrorism to global warming uh, to kind of everything in between. And what we saw, especially in the first six months or so of the epidemic, which then quickly became a pandemic last year, was that many of the global north, white, western, very wealthy countries like the United States and the UK had very poor responses from COVID from the get. And when the responses then ended up quite high numbers of infection and quite high numbers of death and overwhelmed health systems, those governments, instead of saying, yeah, we fucked this up. <laughs> we didn't put the resources into the kind of response that we needed. They instead started pointing a lot of fingers at like who who was to blame. And mm -hmm. unsurprisingly, those fingers were pointing at fat people amongst who was to blame. So my colleagues and I wanted to sit down and talk about that that was happening. And we talk about in the piece that this always happens, mm -hmm. um, that even in times of non-crisis, we position fat people as like the scapegoats, you know, for everything that we don't like about society. We also talked about in the piece how not only are fat people problematized or positioned as like the real problem is them, not us. What also happens is because we live in a culture that is saturated with anti-fat attitudes, we don't prepare for fat people in times of emergencies. So in our paper, we talk about the fat people who were either left behind to die or who were killed by um, healthcare workers before the rest of the people evacuated in times like Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. um, Superstorm Sandy. We have evidence of this. We know that this happens. Um, so we wanted to use our piece as an opportunity to kind of illustrate what was going on with COVID-19 within a larger context of fat people are often just left behind to die. And that's not okay. Um, the The best part of the piece for me, the piece that um, I still go back to and reread in my moments of needing something hopeful is that fat people know that this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we have done better at coming together at a community to save ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so we highlighted two works of fat activist groups, one in the United States and one in Europe, that were working together to produce mutual aid groups for fat people during COVID, to produce advocacy guides for how fat people could handle, you know, if they ended up in hospital with COVID, <laughs> um, and provided a lot of other support and resources that fat people could utilize in order to best prepare themselves and protect themselves from a pandemic that the government wasn't going to do for them like they should. Now, I know this is in a journal, 
article, an academic yeah, journal, true. right? Yeah. So where can people find this information? You can find a copy of that article actually on my website, friendofmarilyn.com. If there is ever any a piece of mine or any piece of fat study scholarship that any of your listeners is ever keen for and can't get to because it's behind a firewall, they're very welcome to email me or tweet me and I will get it for them and send it to them <laughs> because I don't think that any knowledge could be behind firewalls. It's actually, if I can just talk a moment about that particular journal. Sure. So that is, that that's a Q1 journal. And for those of you who are in academia, which is probably most of you, and that's fair, Q1 is kind of the top ranking that a journal can receive. It means it's very hard to get into. It means it's well, very well cited. So my colleagues and I decided that we wanted to first with this piece, we wanted to aim for the top. We thought, we, we want to aim for this journal, not just because it's one of the best journals in its field, but we purposely didn't want to put this in a journal like Fat Studies because we wanted this in front of the eyes of people who were doing disaster risk management. Mm -hmm. We want it in front of those scholars, in front of those practitioners. And when we first submitted the piece, we got a desk rejection. Now, a desk rejection mm -hmm. means that the editor at large of the journal has looked over what you've sent and has decided that it's not appropriate for the journal and they're not even going to send it out to reviewers. Laura, this is my first desk rejection as an academic. I got mm. them all the time when I was a grad student. When I was a PhD student and I was trying desperately to publish my stuff, I got desk rejections constantly because I didn't I didn't know what I was doing, you know, so I'd send a quantitative piece to a call journal and make really silly mistakes. Anyway, so in his response as to why he was rejecting it, he said that it was because we were using the pejorative term fat, which was mm. inappropriate for a scholarly journal and scholarly analysis. So I turned to my colleagues and we first of all had a, had like a bit of a laugh and a bit of a what? We secondly realized that we hadn't included in the piece the early paragraph where you talk about we use the word fat for these reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and we decided that we would respond back to him, which is to like, we'll use it as a learning opportunity. So I wrote back to this editor at large and I said, I appreciate, you know, your response to this. However, we're fat study scholars. Here's a bit about the field. Here's a link to our Q1 journal. We'd really appreciate it if you would reconsider. Mm -hmm. uh, and he came back, apologized, sent it out to reviewers. And as you said, in January of this year, it was published. That's a great story. It's the background behind getting it published. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories of the year, for sure. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening and watching Full Body Frequency. My guest today is Dr. Kat Pazé. She is a fat studies researcher, as you just heard. Her research focuses on the effects of spoiled identities on the health and well-being of fat individuals. And today we're speaking about COVID-19 vaccinations and the information and the non-information around <laughs> their appropriate administration as related to fat, plus size, obese people, whatever you want to call us. As we reflect upon medical care during the pre-vaccination phase or the first year of the pandemic, media reports and eyewitness accounts from healthcare workers, specifically doctors and nurses, often cite that determinations were made on who received care, what specific care they received, and all of that was based on physical attributes such as size, race, and or age. 
The decision to provide care seemed to have been made and is being made still, especially in the States. I can only speak from what's happening in the U.S. It's being made on a set of perceived facts about the value of a person's life, their quality of life, and life expectancy. Now, we know that studies have been done on the disparities of health care and the inequity of care delivery, again, based on race, gender, and sexuality pre-COVID. The coronavirus, as you know, has magnified these issues. So then therein lies my question. But are these studies currently being done on the impact of visual care selection? And my term visual care selection may be misguided, not appropriate, and and not what you all researchers use. I, I, Laura, I actually think that's a, a, a good way to put it, to be honest. I haven't heard someone put it that way before, but that might be the most appropriate way because it is about what people believe they know about you mm-hmm. based on what you look like. We know that in times of um, disasters and in times where the healthcare system is overloaded, that systems are triaged. And we know that that triaging, when resources are limited, that the the first three groups of people to get tossed aside in terms of triage are people who are old, people with disabilities, and people who are fat. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, people of color, especially that fall into any of those three or across those three categories, experience that even more without question. I'm not aware of much research that's actually been done on that. You know, I would suggest to you that first and foremost, we live in an anti-fat world, so people don't care. So it would probably take a fat study scholar, at least a fat scholar who cared uh, to Mm -hmm. kind of do that, to do that work. I know that fat activists share these stories Mm -hmm. of when it happens to an individual person online and that oftentimes in some disaster research, They'll also record instances where, again, someone was had to be left behind or whatnot, and that'll become public knowledge. One of my colleagues on the piece that we've been talking about, Leslie Gray, she's doing her PhD on the preparedness of emergency and disaster care in New Zealand for fat people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's at least looking at the structural, the, the structural setup in New Zealand and whether or not it is and prepares for and includes fat people in its preparation. Mm. Um, I'm not sure what she's finding. I'm assuming it's not necessarily anything good for fat people. <laughs> <laughs> and you, Laura, as you mentioned, you know, the, the two groups, so the fat rows in the United States and we four fat rights in the EU, both of them in their, in the early work that they did last year, early into the pandemic, A lot of it was about kind of raising awareness around the kind of triaging that happens, drawing attention to specific triage plans for specific countries or states that had already been explicit about this to try to raise awareness and get people pushing back. And it's interesting because, you know, we had seen some of that then at the start and then it kind of went away. But as I listen to Rachel Maddow every day, Mm -hmm. it appears that now, you know, with the Delta surging through the United States, more states are now having to actively start do not just making the triage plans, but putting them into practice because there are several states, especially across the Midwest and down South that have been completely overrun with their healthcare systems. And so not only are they not able to provide 
the basic standard of care that they used to. So, you know, mm -hmm. if someone has a heart attack, they can't take them to the hospital because there's nowhere for them to be in the hospital. But we then also know that even people who are lucky enough to get inside places of care are then triaged out of the things that they might need. And we would fully expect that those people triaged out are the fat people, the people of color, the people with disabilities, the poor people, the older people. And of course, all of those people are also probably less likely to even get into those places of care, much less, yeah, be triaged once they once they do. It's quite sad, and uh, it just reflects on our state of of unhuman being in various parts of the world. Let's fast forward a bit. Most countries, with the exception of some parts on the continent of Africa and some parts of Asia have had relatively easy access to one of seven COVID-19 vaccines. I'm in the US, as I said earlier, and I finished up my first round of vaccines or vaccinations at the end of April of this year, 2021, based on the lockdown and as evidenced by US COVID mortality rates, New Zealand seems far more proactive, I'll say that again, proactive in protecting the health and well-being of its citizenry. Yet we, you and I have had similar experiences when receiving our first dose of vaccine, and that is we did not receive adequate information about the vaccine and the specific needs around plus-size bodies. Talk about your vaccination experience. So New Zealand only started vaccinating in like April and May of this year. Mm -hmm. We had been very behind in when we started. Um, and that was for many reasons, including that New Zealand provided vaccinations for many of its South Pacific neighbors first, mm -hmm. uh, because they are at higher risk than we are due to poverty and their infrastructure or lack of. Uh, and of course, we also, we didn't have, we didn't have COVID here. So mm -hmm. the government made the choice. And then due to delays of getting vaccines, all of that to say, I was able to get vaccinated early uh, because based on my BMI, I was considered a high risk person. Possibly one of the few times in my life where I got better um, access to, to healthcare because mm -hmm. of my size. Mm -hmm. But I was going to take it. I, Laura, I was damn sure going to take it. And I've encouraged all fat people I know around the world to do the same because while I don't agree that there's a higher risk for me of getting COVID or getting sicker or dying from COVID because I'm fat. I know I would get poorer care mm -hmm. if I did become unwell mm -hmm. because of COVID. And so I absolutely, as soon as I was eligible, I signed up for my first shot. Now, I was quite lucky that I had read an article in The Guardian by a fat activist in Australia named Ali Garrett, who had written about the fact that for COVID-19, along with any intramuscular vaccination, like the flu shot, that people with fatter arms or fatty arms needed a longer needle in order to reach the muscle where mm -hmm. the vaccination is supposed to be injected. So I went to my first appointment knowing that information and found to my dismay that that unfortunately my vaccinator did not have that information mm -hmm. because he was prepped and you know ready to give me a shot with the normal uh, 25 millimeter or I believe one inch uh, to put in your language. 
<laughs> um, length needle. And so uh, I asked him if he was using the longer needle and, and he wasn't. And I asked him if he was aware that for someone with quite a lot of fat deposit between the injection site and the muscle like me would need a longer needle. And he didn't know. Uh, he was willing to go get me one. So mm. I was able to be vaccinated appropriately for my first shot. I left that appointment quite concerned that he didn't know. And it made me very worried about how many other fat people in New Zealand might get inappropriately vaccinated and therefore not have the protection that they thought they had from their COVID-19 shot. Yeah, that's quite worrisome. Actually, our stories are similar, but they're a little bit different in the fact that I found out about the needle length post my first vaccination. A friend and I were talking and she said, well, did you make sure that your needle was 1.5 inches or 30, what is it? 38, 38 millimeters. Eventually at some point, the US, Liberia and <laughs> Myanmar will join the metric system. But until then, <laughs> we'll say 1.5 inches. So I didn't know that the first time around and I was concerned. And then my second time around, I was so annoyed with the woman and watching her not be as sterile as she should have been. So mm. I asked her to redo the process, but redo the process in, in preparing the needle. But at that point, I was so enraged by her lack of care that I forgot to ask her mm. about the needle size. Now, here in the States, we'll be able to get booster shots for Moderna soon. Pfizer is available for those who are 65 and older, who have underlying health conditions, and those who are on the front lines. They're able to get their boosters now. But certainly when my time comes around, I will request my 1.5 inches. And I wonder if this is, if, if you might suggest this, that wherever we get our vaccinations, that we call ahead and let them know and request a 1.5 inch needle. Is that, would that be appropriate? I mean, to Laura, it, 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 it it's uh, so incredibly frustrating to me that fat people have to have this information themselves, mm -hmm. that fat people have to um, insist that they're vaccinated correctly. <laughs> that knowledge and that action should be with the vaccinator. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to be doing this work, but unfortunately, we have to because we live in a fat hating world. So I would suggest that, you know, any fat person who's concerned that they might not have access to the needle to call ahead. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that for the United States, just like for New Zealand, the guidelines that are supposedly given to the vaccinators that they're trained with mm -hmm. are very clear uh, mm -hmm. that pe people with fatty arms should be vaccinated with that longer needle. And the guidelines also include that longer needles should therefore prepped longer needle syringes should be therefore kept in every vaccination room or site or whatever it is. And of course we know that that doesn't happen. Like I know that from my first experience, luckily when I went for my second experience before I had to ask the vaccinator looked at me and said, now I'd like to use a longer needle. Uh, is that okay? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yep, nope. Fantastic. Glad you know what you're doing, but they didn't have one drawn up in the entire site. Uh, mm. I was at the main pop-up 
vaccination center. We call them pop-ups because they didn't exist before COVID where the majority of my town is getting vaccinated and they didn't have a single one drawn up. And so, you know, she had to exit me out of the vaccination room back into the main waiting room for about 20 minutes uh, while they, you know, pulled out more vaccine to bring to room temperature in order to draw up the longer needle. And that also, you know, was concerning to me because I am surely not the only person in my town uh, or not even the only person that would have gotten vaccinated that day Mm -hmm. that would have needed the longer needle. So I've been trying to raise awareness about this uh, on social media as best I can. I've been in conversation with the Ministry of Health here in New Zealand and also our Immunization Advisory Center. And unfortunately, what I get back from them is the guidelines are clear. Vaccinators are trained on the guidelines. Therefore, vaccinators should be doing it properly. And <laughs> like, oh, goodness. But because of this, as a result of your COVID-19 vaccination experiences, you are part of a team that has produced and is distributing a survey on vaccine delivery disparities which is a good thing for us. It's a win-win. Making the most of a bad situation. Making the most. There you go. But what do you hope to prove and improve with this information long-term? And is the survey still open? And if so, how can plus-size people participate? So it was after I did a very long thread on Twitter about my experience Mm -hmm. that my colleague, Leslie Gray, who was on the earlier COVID piece with me, She sent me an email and said, this could be an interesting study to do. Let me know if you're interested. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Laura, at that time, I I put it in the too hard, don't have time or energy Mm -hmm. to even think about this basket. Mm -hmm. And it hung out there probably for about a month or two before things calmed down for me a bit. And I reached back out and said, let's do it. Mm -hmm. So we grabbed George Parker, who's our other author on the study that we published earlier this year, and another PhD student, Ash Gillen, who I've done other work with and have published with in the past. And we drew together a survey that was specifically meant for fat people to take to tell us about their experience getting vaccinated for COVID-19. And we asked questions about if they were aware of what needle length was used or if they asked for a specific needle length. We asked a lot of questions that from what I've seen in the data thus far, a lot of fat people didn't know. You know, they didn't know that they needed a longer needle. They didn't know, so they didn't think to ask. They also aren't aware of what size needle they were vaccinated on. That survey is still open. It's going to be open through the end of October. The easiest way probably to to find the link is simply to go to one of my social media pages. It is the pinned post on my Twitter for Friend of Maryland on my Facebook page and other places like that. They can find this tinyurl.com slash fatvax with two X's, C19. So Mm -hmm. F-A-T. V-A-X-X-C-1-9. It's open to any fat person around the world to take. When I checked yesterday, we had over 13,000 responses. So we are blown away by the number of people who've responded. It's largely a quantitative take survey. So for most people, it takes less than five minutes. Mm -hmm. Although there are a few places where you're able to provide answers in in text. And we do invite people at the end to provide their email address if they're happy for us to get in touch with them at a later date to talk about their experience more in depth. 
Excellent. Excellent. I'm so excited. And one of the reasons why, (laughs) one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the program is not just because of my vaccination experience, but knowing that as a community, it's probably a very sadly shared experience. Mm. And hopefully in the future, because this is not the last pandemic that we will go through, sadly, but this can help provide further guidance and guidelines and knowledge for all of us to survive and thrive. Absolutely. We're gearing up, we're putting together a survey for vaccinators. Mm. Um, We're hoping to be able to gather kind of the mirror image from vaccinators. So what is their familiarity with the guidelines around this? What is their, what kind of training, if any, did they get around this? And what's been their professional practice? When do they make the decision? Do they tell people? I mean, I think one of the interesting things that my colleague George Parker brought up in one of our meetings after we started collecting the data and and looking at what we were seeing is that a lot of fat people have real anxiety around not knowing what length needle they were vaccinated with. Mm -hmm. And so they know that they've been vaccinated, but because they don't know whether if they actually needed the longer needle and if they did, if it was used, they have real anxiety and concern that maybe they're not protected. And so, you know, we're interested to find out from these vaccinators, like, do you tell them? Like my second one did, she asked, she said, Mm -hmm. I'd like to use a longer needle, but obviously that's not the norm. And so there's, there's work to be done around how we're training up the vaccinators and how we need to encourage them that even if it might make them uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to say to a person with a fatter arm, I'm going to need to use a longer needle in order to vaccinate you properly, that that's actually better for that experience for that individual being vaccinated because then they know and they don't have that anxiety around, Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I have no idea. And I think both of the pieces of work are going to be important. I'm really hopeful about ways we can raise awareness and potentially change practice, not just in New Zealand, but perhaps around, you know, the the entire world. And take us one step closer to fat people actually getting ethical, evidence-based care when it comes to vaccinations. Absolutely. Again, thank you for all the work you're doing on behalf of all of us in the fat, plus size, obese, Zaftig, Rubenesque, <laughs> fluffy, curvy community. We we so appreciate you. For more information on the important work that Dr. Kat Pase is doing on fat studies, and more specifically on the COVID fat vaccination study, visit her social media handles, which will be in the show notes. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share her work as well as full body frequency. So until next time, tune into your own full body frequency where large is luscious living.